If you are able, please rise to honor the reading of God's word from Exodus, chapter 19, verses 7 to 15. Just prior to these verses, Moses had gone up onto Mount Sinai and was instructed to God to speak on his behalf to all Israel. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. Starting at verse 7. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and said before them all these words that Yahweh had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that Yahweh has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to Yahweh. And Yahweh said to Moses, Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak to you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told these words to the people, uh, excuse me, when, the, when Moses told the words of the people to Yahweh, Yahweh said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, Yahweh will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. May God add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Thank you that we've sung the truths that you have given us. We thank you that we've prayed those truths. We thank you that we've heard those truths through the reading of your word. And now in the midst of the message that is about to be shared, Father, we pray that you will use those truths to change us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning's message is entitled, Are You Prepared to Meet with God? And one of the components that this meeting with God has accompanied with it is the need for a mediator. So in order to get our minds around this idea of mediator, I'd like to ask you a question. You ever had any conflict, any relational conflict, between a friend, a coworker, maybe a family member that required somebody else, a third party, to get involved to mediate or to bring about a resolution to the problem. I've had that. I've had that at work, ironically, where a couple of actual departments at work as a law enforcement officer Two were not getting together, and so they got a hold of the leadership and said, hey, you guys aren't working too well together. 
you guys need to work better, so let's get the, the let's bring in a mediator and mediate the differences between this unit and that unit. So we took care of it. Seen it in my own life, seen it in my own marriage, where, where godly people would come alongside Cynthia and I and mediate conflict that we just didn't know how to get out of. We just were stuck in. We, 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 we were broken, if you will. There are certain conflicts where mediators are necessary because the relationship is broken. Everything that we could do, we've tried, and it's not working. We're not moving forward. Well, our conflict with God is such a situation. It is a broken relationship. Our sin has caused a chasm between us and God. I use or I chose the word chasm specifically so that as we're learning that in the Hebrew language, that when a word is repeated, it's meant to hyperlink to an event. It looks backwards to an event, and you take components of that event and you move it forward. And the cyclical idea in the grammatical a literary construct of the Bible advances a theme not through a straight line. It picks up new information and the words will be dropped that grab old information and it moves it and it combines it. It becomes like an amalgamation of truth that moves forward and we, we progressively understand God more and more. Well, the word chasm, for some of you, might reflect back on Lazarus, and the rich man, when, they, when both die, they are separated by a chasm. It's the parable that Christ himself told. The rich man is in Hades. Lazarus, the beggar, is in the bosom of Abraham. It's a picture. It's, another, it's a, a way of saying, a picture that is used to create an image in your mind He's in, he is in a place of, of paradise, separated. You have one in absolute anguish. You have the other in paradise. This paradise is not a perfected paradise. That happens upon Christ's work on the cross. Pastor Pete did an outstanding job in teaching that in Sunday school. If you would like to know more about that topic, you can read or you can listen to those on our podcast or that the, the church has. It's, I don't have time to go further into that understanding, but I want you to see that what Christ uses as a picture is this word chasm. You can't get to them, and they can't get to you. When Adam fell, all of his progeny, all of that offspring that came after them, you and me, everyone here on this earth, have the same problem. There's a chasm. We are in need of some means of having that bridged, having that resolved, having that fixed so there's no longer that chasm, that separation, that conflict that, that keeps us at such great distance. We're going to see that today Moses is a mediator, and a mediator, sometimes we get these technical words and we go, I really don't understand that, but I'm just going to move along in my Bible. This is a critical component of our faith. You know, when I was describing what uh, and some of the mediation uh, scenarios in my own life, maybe you were thinking of your own, and you're thinking, oh, gosh, 
so bad I have to bring in a mediator. It's like the mediator for us because we're, uh, we were in this Western culture of a d individualism. I'm my own man, I'm my own woman, I make my own way. That somehow there's weakness in having other people come in and mediate. And so when we, we're tempted, when we hear this role of mediator by Christ, we kind of turn off our minds and we go, yeah, I, I really don't understand it, it's not a big deal. Maybe it was back in the Old Testament. Yeah, well, not, not a big deal. Oh, no. Christ Jesus. We see the old, the, Moses as a mediator in the Old Testament. We're going to see that Christ is the better mediator today. In fact, today we'll address the official role of the mediator, Moses, in the covenant at Mount Sinai. And we're going to also see a second component. So we're tracking two different thoughts today. And the second thought is the problem sinful human beings have when they attempt to come into the presence of a sinless God. This is a serious rut row. We got a problem. We cannot come into the presence of a sinless God with the filth of our own sin. And so he's going to address that this way. In fact, if you'll look at your, your bulletin, you'll see the takeaway today combines both of those understandings. And when it states in there in the takeaway, meeting with the one true holy, and remember when we've talked about holy, certainly there's a condition of purity, and we're going to see that understanding, but holy first means set apart, utterly different. This is not the same as that. We look different, we are different. And of course, some of the difference is, it's certainly an important component, is the moral purity. So the problem sinful human beings have when they attempt to come into the presence of the one true sinless God. One, we need a, well, let me read it, excuse me, uh, the takeaway, I should just probably read it as you see it. Meeting with the one true holy God is a sacred act that, after the fall, it means you and me, it applies to you and me, we're post-fall, requires a mediator, one who makes us acceptable through cleansing. That's the key role here. So let's take a look at that. In your bulletin, you'll see that our, our first point that we'll note is that the mediator who makes, the, 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 makes possible the meeting. Two entities so opposite of in each other in purity need a mediator before the meeting can take place. That's what's going on in this scenario today. Take a look at Exodus 19, and we're going to go from 7 through 9a. A is just a way of saying uh, the first half of it. Anytime you see the word, it'll say in your Bible, the Lord, all caps. Um, no, your Bible didn't, you know, you didn't, we weren't reading from a, a weird Bible. You heard uh, 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 Jamie say it. Other people say it when they're reading scripture. We refer to the Hebrew name of Yahweh when we read the Lord with all caps. That is his name. It means self-existent one creator. And we, we believe it helps us understand that it's talking in what capacity. Is he talking about us, you know, his relationship to us as God, mighty one? Or is he talking to us as relationship to us as, excuse me, as Yahweh, the creator, the all-powerful one, the one who comes in covenant to meet with us? So we, see, we read in verse 7, So Moses came, came and called the elders. The elders are the representatives of the people. There's a lot of people. You need representatives. You can't talk to all the people at the same time. It's too big of a group. It's a million plus. They're also somewhat set aside as, I should say, that they're self-appointed by the people of God as their representatives. 
It's not, just not people that said, yeah, I want to be the boss today. No, it's not that. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words. What words? Well, we were in uh, verses 1 through 6 last week, and 1 through 6 dealt with the proposal of the Sinai Covenant. He gave a general, broad overview of this is what the covenant is. Here's a preamble that, de- that dealt with who he is. He, co- he steps in and says, I'm Yahweh. He introduces himself. That's what the overlord, the more powerful, would do in these treaty relationships. And then we notice that he came in and said, hey, this is the historical prologue. This is what I've done from you. You know who I am. I delivered you out of Egypt. You know me as mighty God. And then he got in, and in verses 5 through 6, he got into the stipulations. And he said, look, if we're going to be in treaty, I'm putting it before you. You need to obey me in fullness of obedience. But he doesn't get into the details. This is just a general proposal. And that's going to play a part in our, in our passage today. Let me, again, it says, before them... All these words, the Sinai covenant proposal that that Yahweh had commanded him. All the people answered. So if the people are answering, we didn't have the people. We had Moses talking to the elders. So the elders have gone to the people. And now we're getting a narrative of what the, the people told the elders. Don't think that there's a disconnect here. And all the people answered together and said, All that Yahweh has spoken, we will do. When you hear that, you're kind of like, yes. They're getting it. They're doing right. They kept doubting and rebelling against God. This is a good thing. And I want to suggest to you, it's not what it appears on its face. Think about this. When you tell a child or someone smaller than you, maybe you're a teacher and you've got younger kids, maybe you're an aunt or an uncle, and so you're, you're, you're with your nieces or nephews or your parent, whatever it happens to be, and you're trying to tell them something important, and they look at you and they go, oh, yeah, I got it. And you sit there and you go, yeah, yeah. Based on that answer, <laughs> you don't got nothing. You missed it. You're, you're taking this flippantly. You're taking this impulsively, prematurely. It, the, probably the best word is, You're taking this impetuously, if you could put an L-Y on that word. The idea is you're you're saying yes before you're thinking through what you're actually agreeing to do. And I believe that this is truly the statement because they're going to do it again. And yet God is so gracious. He's going to wait till chapter 24 after they've heard everything. And he's going to officially ask him again and say, okay, now that you've heard all the law, Are you ready? Are you ready to covenant? See how tender God is with the people on on making them understand. He understands that they are juvenile in their understanding of him. Each of us, when we came to the Lord, when we came to understand Christ, we were somewhat juvenile in our understanding. We need time to grow in our understanding of who this God was. Verse 8 continues, And Moses reported... This, the idea of reporting is Moses is this go-between. God gives him a message. He goes and reports it to the people that God told him, the exact content. And then he reports what, back to what the people said. So there is in this understanding of being a mediator, this, this person that goes back and forth and communicates from one party to the other party as an official representative of each party. 
Oh, but there's so much more that goes on that is required in God's house of a mediator. We continue on. And Moses reported the words of the people to Yahweh, and Yahweh said to Moses, Behold, that's a stopper in Hebrew. That means pay attention. I don't know what you use for your children to get their attention. Do you say things like, hey, look at me. I want to make sure you got your eyes up on me. Do you say, hey, do you understand what mom and dad said? This is what God is doing to his people. Pay attention to me. This is important. He says, behold, and in the Hebrew, the word I is emphasized. He wants them to know who's doing this. Behold, I am coming to you. That ought to scare them. That would scare me. Nobody gets to see their God in the ancient Near East. They, they create idols for their God. You're coming into our presence? You just took care of all that deliverance against the wicked people? There's something I should be concerned about. This is, this is a dangerous situation. I am coming to you. And in furthermore, to give us an indication of that, it says, in a thick cloud. Well, the cloud aspect we've seen before. When the angel of the Lord got the attention of Moses in Exodus chapter 3 by having a bush that was burning, only the bush wasn't being destroyed or consumed by the fire. It was just burning. We were taught that the angel of the Lord was in the fire. Moses can't see the form of God, but he is told that the, that the, the second person of the Trinity, the angel of the Lord, is there present. And some of you may go, What? Second person of the Trinity, that sounds like a stretch. But we already went through. You can check out a a past sermon, uh, how many times we see the angel of the Lord. And in Hebrew, we need to be mindful that when a a title is given, oftentimes the formal title will be dropped, and you'll see other ways of communicating the, the person that we're talking to. So we know that in the Old Testament, Yahweh refers to both Father and Son, the second person of the Trinity. When the the Bible wants to make a clarification, we're moving from father to son, it says angel of the Lord, or it might say angel of God. The reason why there's a difference there is one's representing relationship. Remember, Yahweh is is the relational term from God. The word God itself means Elohim. It means strong right hand. It means strong person, the mighty one. So it's the same person. It's just referencing different attributes of that person. So when we saw the word cloud before, and we knew that, that the second person of the Trinity said in chapter 3 that I'm going to be present with you, and then at the time of the exodus out of Egypt, he shows up by day in a cloud and by night in fire, and he protects the people as they flee from Pharaoh and his armies, we know we're dealing with, as long as the, the, the reference to cloud is there or the pillar of fire, we're dealing with the second person of the Trinity. That shouldn't surprise us because who is our deliverer in the New Testament? It's the same deliverer, which was the physical representation of deliverance in the Old Testament, We were being delivered out of the bondage of slavery in the Old Testament by the second person of the the Trinity. By the time we get to the New Testament, we have a release, an an exodus, if you will, a freeing of bondage, not from slavery, a physical slavery, but of a spiritual slavery under bondage to sin. We should expect it to be the same person. It is the same person. It's not a stretch. So with that understood... 
we see here, he says that I'm coming to you in a thick cloud. That additional descriptor of thick, eh, we, we may not get it. The Hebrews would have got it. Typically, when God comes, and that word is used as the, with the cloud, the word cloud, thick or dense, your Bible might say, it normally means judgment is on the horizon. It's a warning of sorts. So first we have the protector of God, meaning that the, just the cloud is representing uh, the angel of the Lord, the second person of the Trinity, as protector of the people as they flee from Pharaoh. He's directing their moves. He's making sure that Pharaoh and his army is wiped out in the Red Sea. And as he brings them from the, the crossing of the Red Sea to where they are now at the, at the mountain of God, Sinai, he has protected and provided for them. He's brought them food and water. We've seen that component. And now we're going to see judgment. In fact, it appears that this judgment is a twofold warning of judgment, a warning of judgment not to rebel against Moses as the official mediator. You rebel against him, he's my official mediator, you're going to see judgment. Oh, do we see judgment. Judgment in the form of physical death, immediate physical death, because they will rebel against Moses, because their hearts are prone to wickedness. But there's a second warning, a warning of judgment not to come into the presence of Yahweh without being cleansed. That's what we're seeing today particularly. Let's look at this. Verse 9, continue. He's coming to them in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you. We're going to deal with what they actually heard in next week's sermon. Let me just pause for you real quick before I get to the latter part of this. God is speaking to them, to, excuse me, to Moses so that they know, oh, he's the official mediator. There's no other mediator. There's one mediator. Please hear the importance of that. Muhammad, Buddha, whoever the world says in its New Age theology is the mediator of a better covenant. That mediator can only be designated and determined official by God. There is no self-appointing or seeing an angel and saying, oh, I'm now the, covenant, the, the mediator of an extending covenant. No, 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 no. There's one official mediator, and we know that mediator, mediator is Christ Jesus. Amen. We continue on here. It says this, and that the people may hear when I speak with you. And then in the Hebrew, you have to make some decisions as the translator. I believe that what the ESV did is not helpful to me. It may be helpful to you. I am very, very concrete. I like explicit words. I like, I like to understand how this connects to that. And so... When he says that the people may hear when I speak with you, I believe the, that the, the punctuation there, there's no punctuation in Hebrew. All translators have to add punctuation that it stops right there, period. And then it starts a new sentence that says that they, excuse me, that they may also believe you forever. They'll know you're my official mediator, and they'll know that by I will be talking with you, and all of this lack of distrust will be gone. They will, they will believe you because I only speak directly with you as, as my official covenant mediator. Something interesting about this, 
Moses actually doesn't mediate the whole Sinai covenant. We actually see God in the, in the Decalogue, the first Ten Commandments. He speaks directly to the people. In fact, we're going to see how terrifying that is in the coming weeks of God speaking directly to them. Interesting enough, the better mediator, Christ Jesus himself, the whole covenant is on his shoulders. He mediates it all. We're going to see in Hebrews how that plays out and what that exactly means. And he mediates a different covenant. The mediator in the, Old, in the New Testament mediates the covenant of grace, not the Sinai or the Mosaic. Those are synonyms for the same covenant, Sinai and Mosaic. The, Jesus Christ himself mediates the covenant of grace. So now we move to their second component. What must be done to avoid judgment in Yahweh's presence? What do we got to do to make sure that we can come into a, a pure God's presence, a, a morally pure God? How do we come into his presence as sinful beings and not be utterly destroyed? And we're going to see that Moses goes beyond communication and he must set the Israelites apart in some manner to, set, to uh, sanctify, to consecrate is the idea of setting apart. He needs to make pure or make clean the Israelites before they can come into God's presence. So we read in Exodus 19, 9b through 15, he says this, When Moses told the words of the people to Yahweh, Yahweh said to Moses, and by the way, this is in command form in the Hebrew, go to the people and consecrate them. What is this human being going to do to consecrate a people? He's just as dirty as they are in a real respect of knowing that he is a sinful man. What can he do? He has to set them apart from something. We're going to see that, that's, that we understand what that something is, and that something is sin by what he tells them to do. He says, and, uh, and again, the Hebrew, I think it would be more helpful if it were to say, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, period. Have them wash their garments. That's how he's setting them apart. When you put the and in there, it's kind of confusing. Is he doing something he didn't say? Is there something magical going on? No, no, not magical. No, when you put the period where the period needs to be, you realize, oh, the setting apart is the washing of the clothes. Somehow this act represents something. It is a ritual act that represents something greater than the act. And boy, are we reminded of Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus, let me say it this way. This act this cleaning of the clothes is supposed to represent the cleaning of the heart. Clean clothes, outward, that means inward, something happened, something took place. I'm now ready to be in the presence of God. My heart has been cleansed. Look at my clothing. They represent what took place inside. The outward represents the inward. It's ritualistic. It's designed in the Old Testament in its physical form. Remember, we had a physical delivery of the Israelites out of Egypt, the Old Testament uses the physical to point to the spiritual of the New Testament and the covenant of grace. What is it pointing to? It's pointing to a need for somebody who's a lot greater than Moses 
can, that can actually do the work, that can not just ritually point to a work that needs to be done, that actually does the work. And that work is performed by Jesus Christ, who is sinless and dies for your and my sins so that we might stand in the presence of a holy God deemed legally as holy. And we're going to look at some other things, some other kind of sins. There is a legal standing of sin, and there is a fellowship understanding of sin. In Christ Jesus, because of what his blood did, it cleansed us from all unholiness as we say, Lord, I'm done rebelling against you. You are my king. You are my savior. I, would, I am deserving of absolute, utter death and damnation because of my sinfulness. When you make that statement from the heart in whatever words you have to recognize I need to repent of my sin and, ask, and, and, and recognize what Jesus Christ did for me, when you have done that, then you stand legally. And we're going to get to, in the latter part of this, what about I still sin? All those sins are covered, but we still have an understanding of those sins do cause a temporary hindrance in our relationship. Not our legal standing, but in our relationship. So we see the dynamics. Some people sometimes will come to me and go, why do I have to ask for forgiveness of sin if Jesus Christ did all this work for me? Is that really necessary? Oh, yeah. There's a relational component that needs to take place. doesn't change my standing. I'm still a child of God because of what Jesus Christ has done for me. But if your child has sinned against you, you know there's a relational conflict that needs to be resolved. There's a brokenness in fellowship. So we continue on here. We see that the, the better mediator goes beyond just the ritual cleaning that we're seeing Moses do. Why did they need to be cleansed? Because twice at least we have seen from the time they, they crossed the Red Sea until now, they have grumbled against God. They have said, you aren't good. We don't want you. We want, we, we're just, we, this is a terrible situation. We're out of water and we're out of food. They don't trust him. They don't believe him. They're not grateful for everything he has done. Really? You can, you can de- demolish the world power, the mightiest people that had you in bondage, that had us in bondage, and yet you can't feed us? Sometimes I'm amazed at my own anxiety in my life. What happens when we come into the presence of God with the filth of our sin not dealt with? And I want you guys to start be thinking, I am pointing to the you as a New Testament. There, it unfortunately sometimes gets conveyed by the church itself that the Old Testament's old and has no bearing on the New, and the New Testament's new, it's all grace, and we can live like hell and have no consequence. And that's just not true. Let's look at the second bullet point. We saw in the first bullet point underneath the, uh, the second major bullet point, you might say the sub point was you must be consecrated or made acceptable to be close by God. And we saw that in verses 9b through 11a. Well, now as you look at your bulletin, you can see that the second point there is for presence without purity equals judgment. You come into the presence of God, and I'm speaking of corporately. Hello, church. We're meeting corporately. This is the people of God coming together. You do that. Presence without purity equals judgment. Let's take a look at that. 
Well, first off, let's look at verse 11b. Continues. It says this: For the third day, Yahweh will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all people, of all the people. In the Bible, the use of the number three has a general, broad overview sense of significance. It's increasing significance. I loved the song we sang today. It's the first song we sang in, the, in our hymn of adoration. Pastor Pete picked that out. Didn't even know that there was another song that went to that, that, that tune. We recognized that tune from another song. It made it easier for us to sing that hymn. I don't know how many times, I think I counted five times, we, we sung, holy, holy, holy. Three times the word was, was used. It means the holiness, the most holy. We'll see it in events. We'll see it in time frames in the Bible. The number three means significance. Jonah in the belly of the whale for three days. Oh, well, that's significant because when it comes to the New Testament, Jesus' death in the belly of Hades for three days, that's significance. These are big anchors. These are very important things. That's what the Hebrew language does. It uses three to point that out. Listen to this by one commentator as it relates to the three days. Hey, it says Yahweh is coming in three days. Listen to this. And I think it aligns perfectly with what our, my position is anyways, that the people responded with an impetuous attitude. Oh, yeah, we can do that, God. We're good. We're on board. This covenant is a piece of cake. I can handle this. Listen to this. He says this. After two days of preparation, God will descend in the Shekinah glory. The Shekinah is a churchy word that just means a manifestation of God's per- personal presence. And we're going to see that Shekinah glory. You see that typically in a in a, a phenomena of nature, a grand phenomena. We're going to see that next week. So God will descend in Shekinah glory on Mount Sinai. Remember, that's the mount of God or the mountain of God in the presence of the people on the third day. Three days is a significant time period in the scriptures. For instance, in the story of the offering of Isaac by his father Abraham, the two figures travel for three days after God's command to sacrifice Isaac. So it's, whatever they're doing, it's big. It, it's something important. But there's also something that God's going to use in the midst of that three days. He continues on. The reason for the three days delay is so that Abraham could not act spontaneously or impulsively in obeying God's word. He had to prepare and ponder. The same is true of the Hebrews at the foot of Sinai. They could not act on impulse, but they had to wait and seriously consider the meaning of God's meeting with them. The meaning would be the weightiness of it. This is a big deal. Verse 12 continues on. And in verse 12, it's loaded with hyperlinks. See if when I read it, you can get some of the hyperlinks back. What event is it going to be talking about? Here we are. Verse 12. And you shall set limits for the people all around. Take care not to go up. That's not fair to you because that isn't going to let you hear the hyperlink. When I hear the hyperlink, you guys know it from last week's uh, uh, sermon. Keep guard over yourselves. The word is keep. What did we learn about work and keep the garden last week? Working meant to bring about multiplication of them of the, in the garden, the physical multiplication of human beings. That's the physical side of the Old Testament. We see the, that blessing being carried through in the New Testament, the, phys, excuse me, the spiritual multiplication of human, of human beings into the, or I should say maybe more helpful, of souls 
into the new covenant, not by, not by birth, that we know a physical birth, but a new birth. We share the gospel, and we see God do the work in the hearts of the people, and the kingdom grows. Us, as the kingdom of priests, we saw it in the physical. We saw that in verse 6. In fact, Jamie uh, read it, and he backed up a verse so that we could hear that word, that phraseology again. We see that in the, in the new covenant. And then as keep, we saw in keep that in keeping, keeping meant guarding against the entry of sin into the temple paradise. That's what the Garden of Eden represents. Where God's presence is, we're going to see a tabernacle and a temple come out of this, that is where God resides. That is his temple. That is his tabernacle. That is his place of meeting for us. He says this, And you shall set limits for the people all around, keeping or guarding yourselves from ascending unto the mountain or to touch the edge of it. Most of our Bibles say whoever touches. The Hebrew more woodenly says all that touch. And I think the reason why it says all that touch is because we're going to find out that even if animals touch, they're torched. They're done. I probably shouldn't use the word torch because I'm going to use the word that he uses, and I'm going to show you the significance of it. All that touches the mountain shall... He has two, two verbs there in the, grammar, in the Greek, excuse me, in the Hebrew next to each other. Two verbs parked next to each other. We don't do that in English. That means nothing to us in English. We know that. We've been studying the Old Testament. When the Hebrew does that, that means significance. You park two verbs next to each other. So that's why they put, all that touch the mountain shall surely be put to death, would be the better rendering. Where have we heard surely put to death? Think about the same event we've still been dealing with, with keeping. If you take from the tree of good and evil, the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely, you will mot, mot, you will surely be put to death. A hyperlink back, two different hyperlinks in the same passage, taking us back to the garden. We have a tragedy of some sorts here. In the garden, the kingdom of priests were Adam and Eve. They were acting in the capacity. One of their things to do was to keep out sin. They failed to do it. Eve's talking with the snake, and Adam sits there on his hands and does nothing. We talked about that yesterday, or excuse me, last week. They were supposed to keep sin out. <laughs> Listen to this. How ironic. Keeping sin out now in this new covenant? Fascinating. Let me share this with you. In Ezekiel twenty-eight fourteen. It points to Eden was placed on a mountain of God. Mountains in the Old Testament are places where it's up high, it reaches into the skies or the heavens, and that's where you meet with God. When Adam and Eve failed, they were, they were brought down the mountain, out the east door of the, of the Garden of Eden, and out. They're gone. They're not allowed to be there. We are now at a mountain referred to as the Holy Mountain. It's a picture of a new covenant being made. God is saying, I am now ready to come and meet with you as a people. I have met with your, your patriarchs. I have been there for you, establishing. This is now I want to come and meet with you. I need to make possible that I can meet with you. You need to be cleansed in order for me to meet with you. But, oh, take care. The danger of my holiness, of my otherness, my set-apartness, my moral purity. Adam and Eve were supposed to keep out 
to sin, now Adam and Eve are keeping out themselves. Did you catch that? He has to put up a barricade so that Adam and Eve, the, the, those that are filled with sin, could be Nick and Cindy, it could be anyone in here, if we were in the Old Testament. Now, the people of God have to be withheld. They can't come in the closeness of proximity of God because of his holiness. You come too close to this all-consuming God and you are in danger. That's the message of the Old Testament. We will see in the New Testament there's something that takes place. There's a work that Jesus Christ does that makes it possible for us to stand in the throne room of grace, in the room where decisions of God's kingdom being made by God, where we can bring our petitions in, we can do that because of the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. But oh, when we come as a people of God on this day, we need to be careful. Listen to this as we think through this. It says this in verse 13, no hand shall touch, the, touch him, but it, no hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot. Wait a second. So if somebody touches the mountain, someone breaks through the border, if somebody sinful contaminates the holy, brings sinfulness into the holiness's presence, you are to, to shoot him or stone him? What's going on here? What? What? Who? Is that Yahweh doing that? No, 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 no. That's the people of God. Why this act where we, we don't do something that would kill them with our own hands? Touching them. Did you notice both acts are done at a distance, whether you're stoning by way of slinging or you're chucking a rock or you're taking an arrow? They don't have guns there. You have an arrow and you let it go and it, and it penetrates and kills the person. There's distance. Why is there distance? Because you're going to see when God unveils the, the law here and starting in chapter 20 and moving through to chapter 23, that there is a, an idea of uncleanness spreads like an infection. It contaminates others. God is so loving, he says, I don't want you contaminated by that which that person did. Their sin, they, they must die for breaking through into my presence. And you must not be contaminated by that or you will, will die of the same death. That is God protecting the people over the rebellion of some. He continues on. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned, shot, whether beast or man. He shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come to the mountain. That's Sinai, God's holy mountain. So, Mount, so Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. They ritually, God is allowing a ritual to stand in the place of what Christ Jesus will eventually do. He's allowing a ritual to represent that which is done by his son, and therefore he recognizes it as cleaning them, cleansing them. They can come into his presence because of this ritual foreshadowing. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. That's a euphemism for sexual relations. Some have speculated that it has to do with uh, purity. I think it, it has more to do with singleness and devotion. In order for you to be single in devotion, you need to have all your love focused on God when you come here. Don't read this that on Saturday night I can't engage in some act of intimacy with my wife. That's not what he's saying there. Don't take this too literally. 
What he's saying in that situation, he's making sure that the men don't defile the women and so that they're both defiled by the fact that their devotion is now multiplied. There's a uh, multiplicity. They're trying to have devotion of two things at once. He's saying, look, be singularly devoted to me when you come into my presence. The reality of the situation is the presence of God is a place of, of incredible relational intimacy for those who have been made acceptable. For those who fail to come by way of a mediator, by the way, every person in here that is a Christian comes as a mediator, but there's a caveat. For those who fail to come by way of a mediator, mediator and even those who come by way of a mediator, but who come with a presumptive attitude of righteousness. You can stroll in the door, take part of this church on this day that the Lord set aside, and I'm all good. I'll just do what I need to do. I'll go back out. I'll be, I'll be energized. And I'm, I'm the energized bunny. I'm living off grace. And you miss the holiness. You make, if you make a presumptive act of thinking, oh, I'm all good. I don't need to examine myself. There is some form of judgment. Listen to this. This is 1 Corinthians 11, 27 through 32. It, it follows what we're going to have in a minute as it relates to the, uh, Paul's uh, restating the fellowship we have in Christ Jesus through the, the fellowship we share at the table. This follows that. This is part of it. This is, this is a chapter that deals with it all. We don't take the time each week to say this. We do what we call, some of you may not realize this, this is called fencing the table. When we, when we go and I say, whoa, 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 we're getting ready to take part in this. Make sure you, you've examined yourself. You, you come with repentant hearts. And if you're not a believer, don't take part in this. This is a part for the people of God only. This is why. You think I'm making this up or Pete's making this up or you think that we're a, a legalistic church or, or somehow God is a, a mean God? No. He doesn't want you to be in judgment. He wants you to stand in a right relationship completely without sin. Listen to this in 1 Corinthians 11, 27 to 32. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, that it is with an unrepentant heart, a heart that still has sin, I don't care what sin he did. I deserve to be angry at her. She didn't treat me with the respect that I deserve. I can come in here, I can march in here, and I can be a part of God's church, and I can even receive the fellowship that Christ gives me. Oh, really? The fellowship made possible the forgiveness of sin. You cannot partake in this meal without the forgiveness of sin having done, been made for your sins of fellowship, the sins that you have brought about with the relationships of others that hinder your relationship with God. It continues on. And again, this is 1 Corinthians 11, 27 to 32. In an unworthy manner, will be guilty concerning the blood, excuse me, concerning the body and blood of the Lord. In other words, it's like trampling on the blood. Let a person examine himself that he, excuse me, then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who drinks, goodness, Nicholas, read, would you? For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks, what does he eat and drink? Judgment on himself. No, we're in the the covenant of grace. There's no, no judgment. Oh, there's judgment. It's loving judgment. It's not separated from the kingdom. You're still part of the kingdom. You're being discipled as a loving parent does their child. The most loving thing you can do to a, a child is to discipline them so they understand who their God is and how he loved them enough to die for them and disciplines them because he loves them enough to deal with their sin. 
and correct it. Make sure they correct it. Verse 30, this is why, listen to what happened in the early church. This is why so many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, that means if we will examine ourselves, that's what the judging of ourselves is. Oh, dear Lord, before I take your, before I partake in this meal, before I come on Sunday, why do we do this? You know, being a part of a church, I've been the elder that has sat in the meetings and said, how many times are we going to offer the people the Lord's Supper? And we discuss this and we come up with arbitrary numbers, quite frankly. Well, a quarter, monthly, once a year, whatever it is. We can't ground them. Well, Joe Bob does it this way. This church does it that way. In the, old, in the New Testament, it says, as often as they ate, they broke bread. Excuse me. As often as they met, they broke bread. It's pointing to the meal. Why? Because the meal gives us a picture of what Christ did. Why? Because the importance of the meal. You and I have to deal with. I can't come here on Sunday morning and take part of this meal if I've got a problem with my wife, that I have sinned against her. I've got to get right each and every week. That's the holiness of our gathering. We can't be fakers. We can't be posers. We can't mail it in. We can't be like the rest of the world. And, and we can't, certainly can't profess Jesus Christ and live like hell in our relationships. He says, but if we judged, our, if, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined. See the loving nature? We are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. I want to sit and read to you one last passage. You know, the chapter 11 in Hebrews, is, we often refer to as the Hall of Faith. It's a chapter of all the people that have incredible faith. Faith, by the way, the, the emphasis there is that it's God-given. They didn't earn it. God-given. Then you get to chapter 12, and it says, man, you have not struggled to not sin as would be in the imagery of Christ's blood dripping from his forehead. That's the idea. You, Nick, how hard have you struggled against your sinfulness, against sinning others? Chapter 12 is the discipline chapter. It goes on and says, hey, discipline's a good thing. It's hard. It seems hard to every one of us in the moment, but it produces that relationship that produces obedience and so we need that discipline. Listen how Paul sums up chapter 28. We get to the very end of chapter 28, and he's talking about some things that might seem difficult in the latter parts of it. He's saying, hey, look, this isn't a kingdom that can be shaken. This is the kingdom. In other words, you're still part of the kingdom. You don't get kicked out of the kingdom for sinning. But you need to, t to realize that discipline is good because sin getting less, sinning less, is demonstrating who we are as being made in the image of God more and more. If I want a righteous relationship with my wife, if I want a relationship that reflects Jesus Christ to the world, I need to repent sooner when I harm her, when I injure her in my, in my sin. Listen to the summation verse of chapter Hebrews chapter 12. He summed up all this discipline. He says this, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, we are believers. We are part of the kingdom of Christ because of what Christ did. And let us offer to God acceptable worship, and here's the key, with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Jesus Christ, our God, is a consuming fire. 
If you didn't see the imagery with the pillar of fire, he's making it very explicit here. The idea is when we come into this worship each week, we need to have hearts purified, made clean through repentance to the one who makes repentance possible. That's one reason why Pastor Pete led, and every week a a pastor will lead us in a time of confession. So that just in case you came skidding in in the minivan and you got the kids in the back and they're they're acting like wild monkeys and you're yelling, settle down, we got to be, we got to get right here. You know why I know that scenario? Because I lived that scenario with six kids. I'm speaking to them. I'm giving them the law. They better be looking good. And I get in here and I got grace on on my face. It's all smiles. One of the things that happens in this intentional liturgy is to make sure if you forgot, if you were overwhelmed by life, that you don't come into the presence of God. That's why we do it early on in the service in a way that you have not dealt with your sin. I don't want to see judgment on you. You're part of our family. You're my brother, you're my sister, no matter what your age or your relationship to another human being. We love you as sinful beings ourselves. We are sinners, Pastor Pete, Pastor Mark, Pastor PJ, myself. And we need the same thing and the same truth here. Hopefully when you leave today, you will have a higher understanding of the otherness, the set-apartness of our God. You're not coming here for some concert. You're not coming here that's like everybody else, whatever it is they do in worship. You're coming here because this is how God has said, this is what holy, holy, holy worship looks like inside and out. Let us go to the Lord. Heavenly Father, please do not allow the people here. This is some prideful statement of of a liturgy. No. Help them see that this this is a place of humility. This is a place of intentionality. This is a heart that wants to honor you and wants to not come in here flippantly. Father, we love you. We love you because your son died for us. You have loved us first by giving us your son, and we respond in gratitude and love for you. We thank you that we could meet as a people of God and not be consumed by the fire, not be weakened by way of our health, not even be brought into your presence as if that were bad, but because we had to be brought into your presence because we were so flippant about our relationship with you that you loved us enough to say, I want you here. You're not getting it. I don't want you to be a bad... I don't want you to to convey something that is not true. I am a holy God, and you must be holy in my presence, made righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ. We thank you that you make that possible. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.